We're going to pick up on our sermon series from the beginning to the end. The last time I was here, we looked at anthropology arithmetic, and we got that from Genesis chapter 2. We basically covered all of Genesis chapter 2 in one sermon. We obviously didn't cover every detail. There's more there to have dug into, but we focused on the creation of man and woman and what we learned with God's ideal, God's purpose, God's design when he created first Adam and then Eve. And putting it in the context of arithmetic, we learned that God does work in objectives, objective truths, things that are repeatable and it's one right after the other and it doesn't end even if sometimes people think that they can rework that equation. That equation is still steady today. For example, God took the dirt and shaped the body of Adam and then he breathed into that lifeless form the breath of life and then it became a living being. So in other words, the material world, dirt plus the breath of life equals a living being, a human. Then we looked at how God said for the first time in the creation account that it's not good that man should be alone. Up until then, everything was good, good, and very good. But then Adam comes along, and Adam has a job to do. And even before Adam starts to do that job, naming the animals, God declares it's not good that man should be alone. So the equation was 1 plus 0 equals Zero, not good. Man plus nobody else is not good. In other words, God created humans to be social creatures. Uh, We need that social interaction, the communion, uh, the conversations face-to-face. And I'm, I'm glad that we have technology where we can talk to people around the globe or in different time zones or whatever interrupts us and, and keeps us from one another. But it's not an exact replacement for person-to-person interactions. We're, we're social creatures, and so we should be invested in that. That hasn't changed. And then we also looked at the creation of man and woman, because Eve comes along at the end of chapter 2. And Adam himself declared how joyful he was in all of this. He, he said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken of man. And then we have there the original equation for the nuclear family. The the base uh, social unit, if you will, is man plus woman equals family. Uh, God didn't intend everybody to always be single forever. And it's good to have our marriages. And it's good to have the offspring that comes from it. And it's, it's good that man and woman interact and work together because we know that there are different strengths and weaknesses and we need each other. I can't do it all. I'm glad God saw fit to send a woman my way who's a perfect complement to me. And I pray that I am to her as well. So we saw that with the anthropology discussion in Genesis chapter 2. And we drove home the point that it hasn't actually ended. There have been attempts to disrupt it, always to ill effects. Because when God sets something in place and designs something with that purpose, if you try to interrupt that purpose, it doesn't work out, generally speaking. I don't know many instances where it has. 
Today, we will pick up our journey through Genesis, the first couple of chapters, and we will look at Genesis chapter 3, the first several verses. Before we do that, though, before we dig into the Word of God, we're going to look at a couple of other words that were spoken and written, and are they might be well known to you. They were semi-new to me in preparation for this. But if you'll bear with me one more brief word of prayer, and then we'll dig in. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these inspired words of yours, penned so many millennia ago, but not having lost any effect for us today. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that we would eat and see that it is sweet to the taste, that we would drink deeply of these words of life, that we would find you in it and your purpose for us. As we pray in your name, amen. Amen. In 1968, while the Vietnam War was going on, presidential hopeful, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy had what has now become, to some people, uh, he presented a speech to the University of Kansas on March 18, 1968. If you look up this speech, some people list it among some of the top speeches on leadership that we have on record. And while he was doing his usual thank yous and gratitudes, and you can tell if you read the transcript, he's making some jokes along the way and, and so on and so forth. He gets into what is probably more or less a stump speech for him because he was, of course, at that time a presidential candidate. So in typical stump speech fashion, he's bemoaning the conditions of the nation or how the previous or current administration has been doing things, and he's saying, I can do better. He spends a great deal of time talking about the Vietnam War and how if he were in charge, he would run it differently and how leadership should be able to make those hard decisions, even if it's unpopular. He was talking about the state of the cities and the crime and the, the family structure was breaking down and how, how the, the predominantly black communities were finding themselves in hard times in the late 60s. And if he were in charge, he could do better. Leadership could do better under his administration. And then you get towards the end of it, and this quote rang out, and for a presidential candidate, it's a great quote. It's a good quote. It sends home the point that he's trying to make. He says this, some people see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Have we heard that before? If you have, have you wondered what it meant in that context? Or if you're hearing it now, consider what it could mean. Well, in the context of the nation is not good as it is and I can do better, that statement can simply be, imagine, imagine what it would be like if it weren't the way that it is. It's so rough. It could be better. We can improve. We can elevate ourselves. We can change the course of the trajectory of our nation. As a people, we, can, we need to stop 
just wondering and worrying over the status quo and the present and what's going on and, oh, it's so frustrating. But instead, think big and think into the future and think what we could change. And doesn't that sound awesome and imaginative and adventurous? Some people see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Sounds good. It does sound good. Presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy was quoting from the playwright George Bernard Shaw in that quote. Um, Not an exact quote, not word for word, but he got the essence of it. Word for word, it's something more like this. When you and Adam talk, I hear you say, why? Always why? You see things and you say, why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? Again, close. Pretty close. In the play, Back to Methuselah, George Bernard Shaw, though, gave those words to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Leading up to it, Adam and Eve are having their own conversation as they walk through the garden. And they're just kind of going back and forth. And, and Eve is talking to him like he needs, to, he needs her help so that he can be taking better care of himself. And, and he does things this way and she would do this. And they're, they're having this conversation with each other. But then the serpent whispers to Eve. And it startles her. And the, stir, the serpent says that, I've been watching you, I've been hiding, I've been listening to you. And Eve recognizes that that was clever. The serpent goes, I'm the most subtle of all the creatures of the field. And she comments on how lovely the hood of the serpent was. The serpent says, I adore you, Eve. Eve is obviously being taken in by the kind words, the adoration given to her by the serpent in the play. The snake says in answer to her that she's a little startled that the snake can talk to her. And now she's saying, I might never be alone if I have another companion to talk to. The snake says, I can talk of many things. I am very wise. It was I who whispered the word to you that you did not know. Death. And she asks more about it and how it was an unhappy thought that she didn't completely understand. And the serpent says, death is not an unhappy thing when you've learned how to conquer it. Starting to ring familiar to us. Eve goes, how can I conquer it? The serpent says, by another thing called birth. And she asks, what is birth? And the serpent says, the serpent never dies. Someday you shall see me come out of this beautiful skin, a new skin, with a new and lovelier skin. That is birth. I've seen that, Eve says. It's wonderful. And then we get what we've just quoted. If I can do that, what can I not do, the serpent says. I tell you, I am very subtle. When you and Adam talk, I hear you say, why? Always why? You see things and you say, why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? 
I made the word dead to describe my old skin that I cast when I am renewed. I call that renewal being born. While it sounds great to a presidential candidate in its context from its source, how do we think of that quote now? And what could it mean if we think of it in that context? Because in essence, that is what the serpent in the Garden of Eden essentially said. If you have your Bible still open to Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at it again. Beginning with verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God, and my version adds, I, I like this, did God actually say did God actually say what I'm about to quote you shall not eat of any tree in the garden hath God said did he actually say it are you sure you heard correctly or for us down the road did you read correctly hath God said is it actually there that is such a powerful question. Because out the gate, it does one significant thing. Out the gate, it causes doubt. Did God actually say it? Are you sure you got it correct? What do we do with our doubt, though? Have you ever had those moments where you read the Word of God and you, and you just wondered, does this actually mean what it means? Have you been confused as you've studied the Word of God and then maybe you read a commentary from someone else and they don't really line up? I've come across a few where I read the plain writing of the Bible and then someone's comments on it and they're as 180 degrees from each other as I could imagine. Or one says do and the other comment says don't. Very different. Well, in those moments, what do you do? What do you ask? How do you respond? Did God actually say it? Did He actually mean it? There are... I don't want to get into too much of it. I can be on, on a private conversation. There are many conversations right now where members of the church are being told in one way or another in your own study you might read the bible this way but you don't actually know the greek or the hebrew and so allow the educated to tell you what it actually means and in our description the conclusion is not what you've read on your own there's quite a few topics on that going on currently, even inside our own church, not in competing denominations. So what do you do? Well, maybe you respond like Eve, where Eve said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Read back through the second chapter of Genesis and find, don't touch it. 
Now, you could make the point that God said, don't eat of it, and then some time passed, and maybe in an unrecorded conversation, God also warned, don't go near it, don't do this, don't. But God said, don't eat it. And Eve, quoting God, adds an element to it that we don't find in inspired writing. Can that further the problem of doubt? Can that further us a little bit farther away from taking God as he says? Can that encourage us to to play with the words of God and think that we can mold them and shape them and, and add to or remove from so that they align a little closer to what we perceive rather than what he says? How many of us have been guilty of that at times? I can raise my hand. I can certainly raise my hand. I have a very clear memory in my younger years where, where I was trying to answer for something coming my way. And I didn't like what was coming my way, but I was going to prove them wrong. And of course, when you're trying to prove someone wrong in a Christian debate, you get out the Bible and you go searching for what supports your side, right? You don't read it looking for the will of God. If you're trying to win the conversation, you read the Bible so you can come out on top. I've done that more than once. And in this very particular memory of mine, I was certainly guilty of mishandling, misappropriating, misinterpreting the will of God to my end, what I wanted, what I thought God wanted, rather than what God actually wanted for me. And it caused doubt. And it hurt relationships. And it drove me farther apart. This idea of asking the question and how George Bernard Shaw phrased it with the serpent. I, I dream things that never were and say, why not? I can, I can picture that being implied in Genesis chapter 3. Because when the serpent gets back to it and he's saying, no, the, you will not surely die in verse 4. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's holding you back. God doesn't mean what he says. God's selfish and he's oppressive and he's restrictive. And he wants to keep all of the good imaginations to himself and what he can do with the future. And you're just kind of a pawn in all of it. He's repressing you. All of that is there. All of that is insinuated with his statement, with the snake's statement. One, God flat lied to you, you won't die. And if the serpent is in the tree and the serpent is moving around through the forbidden tree and caressing the fruit that's on the tree, touching it, not dying, talking, that might have thrown Eve for a little bit of a surprise. A lot of these are suggestions that if I'm doing what God has said you shouldn't do, look how much better I am for it. 
Why are you stuck in the here and now? Don't you want to question and doubt God and let your own imaginations lead you into the future? Isn't that a better form of progressivism than what God has just stuck you with? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Do we do this today? Do we read the word of God and say he didn't actually mean it? It's not true for us. It might only be true for them. Does God still intend for things to be followed? There's an exhaustive list where people actually, they, they do ask these questions and play this game and come up with those kinds of answers. One, does God still mean for men to be men and women to be women and you can't swap back and forth? Yes, but that question is being asked and answered on the other side. Does God still intend for us to come together and set aside a sanctified 24-hour period that He determined for worship and fellowship and, and coming together in praise? Yes, Somewhere along the line, someone said, did God actually say that, or in our imaginations, can we make it better? Is he holding us back? Did God actually say that when you die, your breath returns to its source, life just returns, and you rest, and you sleep, and you don't know, and you don't return to your house anymore, and you don't talk, and you have no emotions, and did God actually say all of that? Yes, he did. Well, in my imaginations, in how I rework the Word of God, no, we are dualists. We are a shell with an inherited conscious spirit or soul. Did God actually say, how many things can we think of where people use that? I'm sure the list can go on. Because our sinful human nature wants us to, to imagine more than God. That original temptation of, did God actually say, because you yourselves can be gods? That still runs so true for us today. To manipulate the word of God is to play God. To say that the prophecies won't occur, even though God has said, is to play God. To change anthropology equations is to play God. To decide that the creation account isn't how it's recorded by our Maker is to play God. To upset how men and women should interact with each other, or how parents should raise their kids, or how kids should honor and respect their parents. To upset all of that is to play God. You ever imagine or, or think that you've fallen into the trap? I dream of things that have not or are not or were not, and ask, why not? Are you content with what God has instructed for you? Do we think that God changes? Let's look at whether or not God changes for a moment. 
Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. This is, if you read before it, a quote from God to the prophet Malachi. And because we see that there are lots of quotes, because we understand that this is God coming through a human agent, we know that the words are God's. And you should take them as such. Because he says, for I the Lord, Malachi 3 verse 6, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. As he's talking about drawing it near to them for judgment. He'll be a swift witness, and so on and so forth. I the Lord do not change. Has God ever changed? changed his mind or changed his approach to things yes we can see that jonah declares over nineveh god's going to destroy you in 40 days did god destroy nineveh at the end of those 40 days famously not jonah was very upset about that god changed if you will in that moment God changed or was willing to have the conversation with Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah. A beautiful conversation on intercession. And and Abraham is a type of Christ in that. God says, I'm going to go destroy the cities. They're wicked beyond belief. They've passed their threshold. And he says, would you destroy it for the righteous? And he goes, well, I wouldn't. Okay, would you destroy it for so many? Um, no, I wouldn't. And Abraham says, would you destroy it for so many? It's a smaller number. And he keeps going smaller and smaller until he gets down to how many? Ten. Ten. Would you destroy two significant cities if only ten righteous people were found in it? And the Lord says, I won't. Now, we know that there weren't ten people in those two cities. That conversation has been lifted up as God changing. That conversation is best understood as God being gracious, which means he doesn't change because that is his character. God is love and he is gracious and destruction of the wicked God calls his strange act. He doesn't want to do it. But because his character is also just, he has to. So even in that, God doesn't change. And in Jonah, God doesn't actually change because God always responds to repentance and confession and a turning away from sin. He always responds to that. That's his nature to do so. And so when these evil, wicked, debaucherous people in Nineveh did that, He had to respond like he always would. He doesn't change. Jesus, in giving the Sermon on the Mount, says, Think not that I have come to change or do away with the law and the prophets. I have not come to change or to do away, but to fulfill. 
Don't think that one dot or one uh, cross or one tittle or the smallest mark on any letter will be changed in the law until all things are fulfilled, right? Jesus himself says nothing is changing. Many have made the point that he was there to upend things. He was there to set it aright because man and women had gotten it wrong. We had tried to change it and he was putting it back in its proper place. What about in our church today? I may not be talking about us. If this applies to you, then this applies to you. But one example, and we can pray for people who think this way. We can pray for these views and we can pray that they be limited in scope. An Adventist pastor wrote for one of our publications, it has been said that the Lord does not change. And he mentions Malachi 3.6. We just read it. Likely, quote, likely this was an overenthusiastic observation by a spokesperson untroubled by putting words in God's mouth. Very different approach to the inspired words of God. A different writer credited the same God with pledging to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation, and so on. Many hoops are jumped through to make God changeable and his theology changeable and everything that has stood the test of time and has been for the moral and, and ethical good of humanity this author looks to say, no, with each generation we should be willing to imagine something different. We should be willing to undo and rewrite the theology based on what is now and answering the question, why not? It's a rather insidious question because doubting God and His Word really gets in you. And then it can be shared like a virus, and then it can affect a host of people. And next thing you know, you have thrown so many things to the wind. So what is the solution to the problem? What do we do when those thoughts of doubt or imaginations come our way, either on our own or encouraged by others, like Eve from the serpent? What do we do with it? How do we respond? Is it sinful to ask questions of God and His Word? Let's start there. No. Ask the questions. Ask, does God say this? And then study farther. Looking at the Word of God. Praying about it. Inviting the Holy Spirit to guide you through sometimes complex writings. When you read something and it steps on your toe, and I know I've been there, God's Word does step on our toes. It makes us confront things we don't want to look at, and it asks us to change things about ourselves we might not want to change. Everybody asks, does God actually mean this? Because it means I've really got to change a lot. What do you do then? Pray. 
Pray that you get it right. Pray that the same God that inspired it will also help you understand it. And then pray that the same God who helps you understand it helps you apply it. Pray that God will let you see the fault in your own character, in your own ways, in your own actions, or your treatments of others. And then really pray that He can help you be humble in your response. That you can see you need to change, not God. You are the one that needs to be humble and be molded by Him who first molded the dirt into Adam. We are the clay in His hands, and it's not the other way around, my friends. Where you have already done that, and you are living inside of the will of God, and you're certain of it, and another option comes along like Eve and Adam had, no one since then has been living perfectly inside of the will of God like they did until that moment. I can't imagine what that was like, but I'm looking forward to it in the near future. But when a new option comes your way, what do you do? You submit yourselves to the Word of God. You repress the carnal desire to do otherwise. You keep your body in check. And by that we mean the the warring carnal and, and spiritual selves. You keep that in check and you seek after what God wants you to do. If it's worship on the Sabbath and you would much rather find out how your favorite college team is doing, repress the desire for the college team And seek a holy God who is looking to get you to eternity. The college team ain't going to be here for eternity, my friends. Some of them barely make it out of the first part of the season. If your desire leads you into darker corners and it's going to upset your marriage, it's going to get you addicted to something because, boy, that high feels good in the moment. If you think that, that this isn't going to harm me, even though it's harmed everybody else, but I'm okay, I got this. It is a positive, good thing to repress those carnal desires and pray for the victory. It is a positive, good thing to seek after he who says, I love you. I, I care about you more than the sparrows. I know the numbers of the hair on your head, and I clothe the lilies with beauty. And as small as they are, aren't you more significant than them? Seek after Him. When you read the Word of God, and the Word of God says, Thou shalt not, or thou shalt, or someday I will return, so be ready. Take it at His Word. We have many warnings for this. Acts in chapter 13, Paul preaching in, I believe, Ephesus. No, Antioch and Pisidia. He's preaching to the people and he's saying, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. 
I know of conversations in the Adventist church looking to upend our prophetic understanding of the end times. God didn't actually mean that there's going to be enforced worship. God doesn't actually mean that there's going to be uh, an attack on buying and selling and liberty unless you do what the elites tell you to do. God didn't actually say that we're going to have an increase in natural disasters. He doesn't mean that. Those have always been. And that certainly won't be the catalyst for his return. Adventists are saying this. It makes me pray. It makes me pray hard that the Holy Spirit would help me not slip away from the sure word of God. We know that there will be scoffers. Even if people tell them, Peter says as such, in his second letter, he's stirring up the minds of the readers that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So predictions and commandments. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Do we hear those rumblings today? Have you read it? Have you heard it? Have you thought it? Today, from the beginning to the end, we know that God did actually say a great many things. And when God actually says it, He means it. And when God means it, He intends for you to follow it, to live it, to apply it. And where it's challenging, to keep searching, to pray. To, come, to have a study partner. Two minds can go over difficult things together. Hath God said? Well, back in Genesis chapter 3, that question was asked, and Eve, our first mother, and Adam, our first father, should have taken that as the red flag it was and walked away. Or simply said, yes, he did. End of sentence. Today, because we worship a God who does not change, regardless of the blowing winds, regardless of the moving tides in our society, regardless of how good it sounds, Hath God said, unless it leads you to an affirmative, God did say, I would encourage you to hang your doubts on some other hook. Don't hang your doubts on the Word of God. God is consistent. God is true. God does not change. And He will work it out according to His will in the end. And I am thankful for that, and I praise Him for it. If only our first parents and so many generations after that had listened to the Word of God and said, Thank you, and yes, we will, and yes, you have said, 
I believe we'd be in a lot less of a mess than we currently are. God wants good for you. He wants to lead you into a righteous life, and ultimately, He wants to get you to heaven. When He says He loves you, and when He says, keep my commandments, and when He says, I'm coming soon, take Him at His word. And today, submit to follow that word until He does come and take you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the surety of Your Word. We thank You for its stability, and we thank You for its clarity. We thank You that where in our limited abilities we are unsure of what You're saying, we thank You that You have promised the Holy Spirit to guide us through all truths, to lead us into truth, and especially to lead us to Jesus. Lord, I pray that that would be true for each one of us. I pray that each time that we open up your word or we listen to it being proclaimed, I pray that you would inspire us to understand and apply in the same way that you inspired the authors and the speakers. Lord, I pray that where we have gone astray or where we might be encouraged to go astray, and in those moments, Lord, I pray that conviction would come home and come strong, that you would lead us back onto the right path, that you would lift us up again, and you would encourage us to always keep our eyes fixed on Christ who is leading us home. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you that you turn your attention to us and you look upon us with favor. And you do it because Christ saw fit to shed his blood, to die the death we deserve, to be our to be our substitute in this great controversy. We thank you that it is by his righteousness and his merits that we can come before you today. Amen.